Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. Hernias in children are, are more common than we think. It's one of the more common things that we, we see in our, our clinic and as part of our operations. And it's amazing, even a, a seemingly minor surgery like hernia repair in children is still a, a significant event in their life. Hernias can happen when part of an organ or tissue in the body pushes through an opening or weak spot in a muscle wall. This can cause a soft lump or bulge under the skin. Today, we'll learn the signs of hernia and the best options for treating hernias in children. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Mackey and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom, a Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we will be discussing umbilical and inguinal hernia repairs in children. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Stephanie Polettis, who is a pediatric surgeon at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Polettis has an interest in helping children have faster recovery, less pain, and smaller scars through minimally invasive surgery, including inguinal hernia repair. Dr. Polettis, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mackey. You know, we're talking about inguinal hernia repairs today, and I have to share a little story um, of myself. I, I had an inguinal hernia apparently when I was a child and it, I got it repaired when I was five. And I still remember so much about both that surgery and the recovery. And I still have a really significant scar. It's probably three, four inches long on the right side, you know, and it's still there. So it's not something that, that kind of faded or went away as I got older. Yeah. It's interesting. These are, um, Hernias in children are, are more common than we think. It's one of the more common things that we, we see in our, our clinic and as part of our operations. And it's amazing, even a, a seemingly minor surgery like hernia repair in children is still a, a significant event in their life. I remember it and I remember the not being able to stand up and I remember walking like over, like, like kind of bent over like an old woman um, for a long time. And I remember my friends making fun of me for it. <laughs> We, we certainly come a little ways in, in kind of post-operative recovery and pain management and smaller incisions and everything. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to, to get into that a little bit more. Um, but let's start off by just understanding, like, what exactly is a hernia? Um, because it's kind of a weird name that's not that descriptive. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of different types of hernias in adults and children, but generally a hernia happens when there's an opening in the abdominal wall underneath the skin in the layer that sort of covers our abdominal muscles. In children, this can be present from birth. Intestines or fat from inside the abdomen underneath the muscles can protrude out through these openings. Okay. Um, and, and there's different types. So where can it happen at in the body, especially in children? I'm sure it's probably very different in adults too. So Yeah. So the most common types of hernias in children are umbilical, which happen at the belly button where the umbilical cord used to be, and inguinal, which occur in the groin. Inguinal hernias happen in babies and children through an opening where the abdomen meets the groin area that in boys allows the testicles to descend to the scrotum during development. In girls, they still have this opening. Um, this opening normally closes by shortly after birth. And it, if it does not, and especially if babies are born prematurely and it doesn't have the full chance to, to close, a hernia happens. Okay. So you mentioned in girls, they still have this opening. Is there any difference between uh, males and females, um, like not accounting for prematurity and how frequently you see it? Yeah, so inguinal hernias are definitely more common in male children than female, but they still happen in female children. Okay, gotcha. And how would this present? Um, like, what should a parent look for? 
So the, the most common way it would present is, is through having a bulge in the area, um, either at the umbilicus in an umbilical hernia or in the groin in an inguinal hernia. Uh, the bulge um, can come and go usually, and you may notice it more with strenuous activity, which in babies and young children includes even pooping. Yeah. Um, the, the, in male children, the bulge can extend down to the scrotum and present more as scrotal swelling as well. Um, uh, hernias in children are usually asymptomatic or not, do not bother the children too much, but they certainly can cause mild discomfort or, or pain. Um, they're usually soft and able to be pushed back in easily, something we call reducing it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is still important to have the bulge evaluated in the clinic because there's other possible causes of bulges in these areas. Yeah, definitely. Now, like, is this something that would automatically always be present at birth or is it something that can become more apparent just as, as children get older or throughout their infancy? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It can, the, the openings are often there from birth, but they can become symptomatic at any time throughout childhood or become noticeable. Okay. Gotcha. Is this, um, is this ever an emergency when it presents or is this just kind of more of a benign condition? We'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah, there's one situation in which it is an emergency, and this is when it's called what we call incarcerated. So if a child is experiencing severe pain and the hernia is unable to be pushed back in, it might be incarcerated or trapped in the abdominal wall opening. This rarely happens in umbilical hernias, but in inguinal hernias, it happens about 10% of the time and oh. happens more frequently in babies who are born prematurely. Uh, the hernia might become firm and even start to turn color to a reddish or purplish color, and the child may develop vomiting. This can be a sign that any intestines trapped in the hernia are starting to lose their blood supply. So care is needed immediately if this happens. Okay. So does, because of that risk of incarceration, that 10% with the inguinal hernias that you just mentioned, um, is it something that we repair earlier or do we, is this something we want to wait a little bit and kind of see how the natural time or natural like course of it occurs? Mm -hmm. So inguinal hernias do not go away on their own after they're there and generally will become larger over time. Okay. So because of that and because of the risk of incarceration, we do recommend surgical consultation and repair if you think there might be a hernia. Um, unless if it's incarcerated, then it's a more emergent thing. If it's not incarcerated, then this can be done electively. Okay. So I'm just thinking about kind of like my own experience. I think I only had one side of my hernia. Who knows? I've never seen my medical records. Um, but it, do they tend to occur for the inguinal hernias at the, bilaterally at the same time or more just commonly one side at a time? So they can, they can be either. Um, okay. So it can be, it can be on one side or it could be on both sides. Sometimes what happens is only one side is symptomatic, but that we actually end up finding that the child has hernias on both sides or openings in that area on both sides. And it's just sort of something that is waiting to become symptomatic. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, we talked a little bit about kind of like timing of repair. Let's talk about the actual treatments for repair. Um, which are all surgical, right? Um, but there's kind of different approaches for how you can do it. Correct. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, what are the options? 
So for umbilical hernia repairs first, and um, also for these, umbilical hernias are a little bit different than inguinal hernias in that they often go away by the time the child is four years old. Um, so hernia repair is very safe, uh, but overall for umbilical hernias, we typically don't repair them before age four. And in this group, it's been associated with a little bit higher risk of complications, including the hernia coming back. Yeah. So umbilical hernia before age four is reserved for the few patients that do have incarceration, extremely large hernias that are not getting smaller and certain rare complex conditions. Um, and so for hernia repair of, of an umbilical hernia, which is usually in children that are at least four year, years old or older, it's done in an open fashion through a small incision at the lower edge of the umbilicus. Um, and it's a, it's a relatively quick procedure, usually an hour or less, and it's an outpatient procedure where you go home the same day. Um, and Oh, sorry, just a question. With that, with mm -hmm. that um, incision just right below the, the belly button, does that tend to just kind of blend into the belly button for like the scar and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. It's usually made in a way that uh, we, we think it will be hidden in the, in the umbilicus, which is basically a scar itself. So. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, you were, you were going to tell us about the inguinal hernia repairs now. Sure. So inguinal hernia repair is also a relatively short, typically outpatient procedure. Um, it can be performed a couple different ways. One is in an open fashion through an incision in the groin. It can also be performed in a minimally invasively fashion, something we also call laparoscopic surgery with a small camera inserted into the umbilicus. The advantage of this is smaller incisions and scars, less pain and earlier return to activities for many children. Since we know that inguinal hernias can be present on both sides, even if you only have a bulge on one side, then the laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair makes it easy to evaluate both sides and repair them if needed uh, without additional incisions. Okay. When you say the open repair, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Like for somebody who is like non-surgical and mm -hmm. um, who's listening to this? Yeah, it means that the surgery is done directly through through a small incision without the use of cameras and long instruments or what we would call the laparoscopic surgery. Um, so uh, still overall very safe for hernia repair. Um, uh, the incisions just tend to be a little bit bigger. Okay, so with the laparoscopic, when you're, it sounds like you're repairing it from kind of inside, is that correct? And then the, the open, you're more preparing it from kind of the outside approach, is that correct? Or is that just way too, too much of a pediatrician simplified. No, ab approach. absolutely. Absolutely. So that opening, um, between where the abdomen meets the groin can be accessed from the outside through the open repair or from the inside. Okay. Gotcha. Is there any difference in regards to like outcomes? And when I say outcomes with any hernia repair, I always know there's a chance that that repair could fail, um, over time or just in the initial stages, if people are too active. Yeah, that's a great question. I think everybody's always wondering, especially with minimally invasive approaches, is it going to make it more likely to come back? Mm -hmm. um, and actually the, the chance of recurrence or complications in general from these surgeries is exceedingly low. And uh, data have not shown a significant difference in that low risk of it coming back uh, between the different approaches. Okay, so that's good. So just kind of based on whichever approach like the, the, your surgeon is most comfortable with, um, most experienced with, or kind of what the family's looking for. Is that kind of how you guys decide? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, so how long does this, the surgery take? They're both about an hour. Is that right? Or is it a little bit less? I, I just wanted to go back to what you had talked about before. 
Yeah, I would say on average, they're a little bit less than an hour. It always does seem longer to families, though, because there's additional time spent with transport and anesthesia as well. So, Okay, gotcha. Um, as a child, I remember feeling really scared for the surgery. I know my memories are probably not that accurate um, looking back, but I remember just like sitting in this like waiting room by myself just outside the OR. And I think it was the staff waiting room when I look back and like from a medical perspective, knowing what I know now, but how could you prepare a child, especially like an older child, um, maybe a, like I was at five to kind of know what to expect in this procedure? Yeah, we know surgery can definitely be stressful and scary for children and their families. Mm -hmm. We encourage children to ask questions and share their feelings, both at the the clinic visit and when they come come for surgery. We reassure them that they're not going to feel anything during surgery and that everybody is there just to take care of them. Um, We we find that often bringing a comforting item, such as a blanket or stuffed animal, can help. Obviously, that's going to be in a little bit younger children. And then to minimize separation anxiety, family are away from their children for the minimal time needed to safely perform the anesthesia and the surgery. That's fantastic. Um, At Mayo Clinic, we have child life specialists available. Are they often integrated into your approaches with surgery? Absolutely. I think that's a critical part of the team. Uh, We're so fortunate to have our child life colleagues and uh, they they are really amazing at helping children and their families uh, through the procedure Mm -hmm. and the whole process. I feel like over time, there's been kind of an approach where parents sometimes wouldn't tell their kids what was happening because they were afraid that maybe um, that would cause more anxiety and stuff. But with child life, um, the approach is really to collaborate with kids and help them understand. Um, And so is that is that something that you try and include when the kid is old enough, just really making sure that they know what's going on? Absolutely. I think that the, the children are a very, the most important part of the team and um, obviously doing it in, a, in an appropriate way and avoiding a certain scary language. But I think yeah. it's really important to inform them about what's going to happen to them, give them the opportunity to ask questions and express any concerns or feelings. Great. So let's talk about recovery. Um, is is the recovery, I think you mentioned maybe a little bit quicker with the minimally invasive laparoscopic approach? Yeah, many studies have demonstrated a, a faster recovery with the minimally invasive approach. The recovery overall, regardless of an open or minimally invasive hernia repair, is relatively quick in children. Okay. What, is that, what does that uh, look like? Like how long till they can get back to like, you know, climbing trees and mm-hmm. causing havoc, at least like my kids do? So typically we will hear that children are back to themselves within a few days. And that includes, you know, walking, running around, usual, usual kid stuff Uh, for older children. You know, if they're participating in gym class or sports, we usually say you probably want to prepare for about two weeks off just to avoid bumping it or, Mm -hmm. or making yourself more sore Um, in older children that might participate in weightlifting or contact sports that we want them to wait a little bit longer, usually four to six weeks, um, Mm -hmm. because we don't want them to strain that area too soon. Um, and that's certainly something that, that if you're in that situation, you should discuss specifically with your surgeon. Mm -hmm. I feel like kids, no matter what their age, if it's like a two-year-old trying to pick up this massive, whatever it might be, um, they often don't like know their strength limits and stuff. Is there a certain like weight limit that you would, you would tell parents to kind of avoid their children lifting? So typically 10 pounds or a gallon of milk, but we found that in, in, especially in younger children and toddlers, it, it's kind of hard once they feel better, they're going to, they're going to mm-hmm. be kids and do what they want to do. Yeah. And we found that these, these procedures have stood the test of time in terms of holding up to that. Yeah. I feel like 
kids gravitate towards the heaviest object they can and they you know they're so industrious with wanting to move things and rearrange and play so mm-hmm. that's excellent to know that the that the recoveries and the repairs do stand up um what do you use for pain management um do, do these kids need uh, opioids do they can they get by with Tylenol or ibuprofen so we almost always use uh, local anesthetic or numbing medication during surgery at the at the incisions, which helps. Mm-hmm. Um, after surgery, surgery we typically give children Tylenol if they're if they're old enough. If they're outside of the neonatal period, then we give them ibuprofen mm-hmm. as well. And typically, this is um, this provides uh, adequate pain management. We are often not needing to use uh, any opioid medications afterwards. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, like the best uh, pain medication is like some ice cream, I find, at least for my kids, they tend to make everything better. Um, so, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? Dr. No, I was going to say, absolutely. It seems, especially in the, in the infants and younger children, um, being able to have a, um, to have something to eat or a comforting snack, um, right after surgery is, is sometimes the best medicine. <laughs> yeah. Can you get them back to eating pretty quickly? Is that part of the process as well? Absolutely. When they're, when they've awoken from anesthesia and it's safe and they're interested, we, we let them eat and drink. And typically they've done that before, before they've left the hospital. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So last question for you. So parents listening to this, who may have just been told their child has a hernia, like what should they be looking for as they're, as they're choosing a surgical center to perform this repair on their child? Yeah, I would tell them to look for surgical centers that not only have pediatric surgeons with expertise taking care of children with hernias, but an entire team skilled in caring for children in a child-friendly environment. This includes our anesthesiology colleagues, nursing teams, as well as an especially child life specialist who really help families navigate this process. Um, Families, pediatricians, or primary care providers can often recommend such centers and always encourage families to ask questions about any aspect of their child's surgical care and the right center should should get those answered for you. Yeah, excellent. Um, I guess I said last question before, but I still have <laughs> one more for you. Um, do they need to come back for follow-up to see you? And, and if so, how frequently? So especially in our recent climate, uh, we've been able to do a lot more uh, virtually or by mm-hmm. telephone. So typically if a child is doing well after hernia repair, mm-hmm. um, while we are always happy to see them, um, we can often achieve follow-up through a phone call or a virtual visit. Oh, that's excellent. It's, it's, it's such a patient-centered approach um, mm-hmm. to, to include that. I know that we all appreciate that when we're on the other side um, as patients ourselves. So. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Pelaez, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your expertise was fantastic, and I loved hearing um, all, all you had to share about the hernia repairs. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone who listened today. Um, remember to stay safe, wear your mask, get your COVID-19 and influenza vaccine soon this winter, and have a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.